Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Hear these words. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, we're taking bets uh, if God will give us a thunderous uh, roar from the heavens at some point during the sermon. And so let's keep your eyes out for that and what God agrees with. Maybe he's disagreeing, I don't know. But we, uh, so we seem to be people obsessed with the remake. Have you ever noticed that? Now, I'm not gonna ask you to admit that it's your all-time favorite with no question or competition, but I do wanna know how many of you, raise your hands here, how many of you have ever had a favorite show on HGTV? Huh, huh, come on, liars. Like, did anybody else watch Property Brothers? Like, each episode was going to solve the greatest unsolved mystery of our time. And don't you dare come up to me after this sermon and tell me you've never seen an episode of Fixer Upper. I'm willing to bet that some of you have tried to go to Waco or you've thought about going to Waco for the sole purpose of seeing Magnolia Home or possibly running into Chip and Joanna. Any of you? All right, you've done it. And I have no idea what we were doing in the early 2000s with the show Extreme Makeover. Do you remember that? Ty Pennington, ABC. No idea what we were doing except to say that we are obsessed with this idea of the remake. In fact, a few years ago, it seemed like we weren't worried about making any new movies. We were just gonna remake all the old ones. And so I put a poll out on Facebook earlier this week and it's asking you about the best or the worst remake of a movie or a song. And some of you did not disappoint. I think some of the best comments I got, and by best, I mean one of those ones that's the worst, but we can't look away. It's people trying to remake uh, something out of their genre, right? It's, it's those heavy metal bands trying to do a country song uh, or vice versa. And we all have examples of the song, the film, that became an instant classic. And we have examples of the ones that are remade in such a way that they're ruined forever. That's why some people are under the opinion that you don't mess with a classic. Doesn't matter what it is, once it's a classic, it's done. You don't touch it. And there's nothing you can do to improve upon it. Anything you do to touch it in any way will ruin it forever. But sometimes, sometimes, even with a great classic, the remake is better 
than the original. And our passage this morning just happens to be one of those times. See, in Exodus 20, Moses met with the Lord at the top of Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. He got the other 610 too, but we, we talk about the 10 the most. 603, there's 16, okay. And in chapter 24, God tells Moses to go back up the mountain with three other men, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And they are gonna confirm the covenant with the Lord. And in Exodus 24, 16, it says, for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. By Exodus 34, you know, after that little incident with the golden calf, Moses has to go back up the mountain one more time. But it says when Moses came back down this time, it says that his face shone radiant because he had been in the presence with the Lord. Okay, so that's the original. Fast forward with me a few years. We find ourselves six days after Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah, the one who is going to usher in the new covenant teach people how to live righteously with God and with neighbor. And on what would be day seven, Jesus takes three men, Peter, James, and John, up with him on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured before them and becomes dazzling white. His clothes become dazzling white, rather, that's important. And while they're there, a cloud overshadows them and God is going to speak. So it's almost like Jesus is trying to recreate the events on Mount Sinai. No? No? Okay. Well, good Jewish boys like Peter, James, and John would have instantly seen what Jesus was doing. And when Moses and Elijah show up next to Jesus, that settles it. Deal's done. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. See, by the time of the Jesus and the disciples, the phrase Moses and Elijah became a shorthand to mean the law and the prophets. And another way to, to say that, to understand that phrase, Moses and Elijah, is to understand it that that meant a representation of the complete voice of God to his people throughout their inception and their formation. So Peter gets it. He sees exactly what Jesus is doing. And he may not know exactly where all this is going, but he wants to help Jesus finish setting up the scene. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And we like to pick on Peter for his response, like how dense can one man be? I mean, right before this, Jesus has to rebuke him, call him Satan because of his poor ability to realize what it means that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah with the new covenant. You would think it would take Peter more than a week to stick his foot back in his mouth. But given how all this is going down, Peter's response is a reasonable one. Peter's response that they should build dwellings or tents tabernacles, that's the word in the Hebrew, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, it's because Peter knows what happens next in the story that Jesus seems to be recreating. See, in Exodus 34, after having to go back up the mountain one more time and do it all over again, Moses meets with God, he gets the commandments, and he comes back down with another set of instructions, how to build 
the tabernacle. And the people began to construct the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God among them. It's also where the word of God was kept and read to the people. Building tabernacles is clearly the only appropriate answer when you have Jesus transformed into God's image and Moses and Elijah manifest in front of you. It was one of the core tangible markers that we have that God is with us. And the top of the mountain being overshadowed by a cloud isn't a contradiction to Peter's idea. It's a confirmation of it. That this might be horribly terrifying, but it is horribly terrifying in the most wonderful way because this is exactly what happens before God speaks to Moses, gives him the commandments, the instructions for the tabernacle. Peter is spot on in his response. And so what do we do with verse six? Mark says that well, Peter didn't know what to say for they were all terrified. Well, another way to understand that isn't to say that Peter is some bumbling fool. Rather, what if Peter, James, and John are so overwhelmed by what's going on that this is the only response that they know how to make because this is the very response that God told them to make all those years ago on Mount Sinai. But something is different. If the remake is gonna put up bigger numbers at the box office, if it's gonna quell any doubt about which version of the story is the best, then the remake has to give us something that the original did not, that the original could not. See, in the original, it's just Moses' face that shone after he was meeting with God. And here, it's all of Jesus' clothing that changes as well. Mark says that it was such a dazzling white that no one on earth could bleach them. And that's because Jesus isn't trying to reveal himself as the reincarnation of Moses. Jesus is revealing himself as the incarnation of God. Psalms 104.2, it says that the Lord wraps himself in light as like a garment. Daniel 7, 9, as I looked, the thrones were set in the place and the ancients of days took his seat and his clothing was as white as snow. It's not just that Jesus may have been in the presence of God like Moses. The transfiguration of Jesus gives him a radiance that is only used to describe the Lord most high. And this time when God speaks to them on the mountain, all he says is, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And I know we like to connect uh, those words to the words that God spoke at Jesus' baptism. And it's good and it's right to do that. Uh, but there's a subtle difference between those two events that allows what happens here to be connected to the story that Jesus is trying to recreate from Moses. See, at the baptism, God speaks and he says, you are my son. So he's talking to Jesus. At the transfiguration, God speaks and he says, this is my son. And so God isn't speaking to Jesus here. God is speaking to the other people on the mountain. And I want you to notice that that has never happened before. Okay? So yeah, uh, 
Moses took people with him up on the mountain as God had commanded him. But God always takes Moses just a little bit further to talk with him alone. And we see it even in the life of Jesus. Jesus will take the disciples away to pray with him, but then he will always go just a little bit further to commune with God alone. But here they are on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, three men who have no more weight or authority to their connection with God except their willingness to follow Jesus, and God is speaking directly to them. No one is pulled away a little further to get the revelation. Everyone who has followed Jesus to the mountaintop is granted full access to the presence of God. And there is no new law, there is no new commandment, and there is no rewriting of the scriptures. God just simply says, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus isn't standing there with Moses and Elijah as an example that he is superseding them or that, you know, he's abolishing the words that God spoke through them because, well, yeah, there's just no longer any worthy of our attention as Christians. No, no, no. Jesus is standing there because if we will listen to Jesus, if we will follow after the example of Jesus, then everything else will fall into place. Everything in the scriptures is converging itself to this single moment of Jesus revealing himself as the word made flesh, sent to dwell among us. It's almost like God is showing us that if we really want to be about the business of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, then this is exactly what Jesus was sent to do, to teach us. So what did Peter miss? I mean, he definitely knew the Moses story. That's pretty clear. He would have known the Messianic Psalms. He would have known about the description of God on his throne in the writings of Daniel. But what did Peter not yet have that he would get later, but that we have today? The cross. This is why Jesus reveals himself to the disciples in this way and then says, you know, hey, don't tell anybody about it. In fact, the transfiguration of Jesus is surrounded by Jesus predicting his death three different times in Mark's gospel. But slow down and read verse nine a little more carefully. Jesus doesn't say, you know, don't tell anybody about it. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about it until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why? Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel is incomplete and the transformation is ineffective. Let me say it again, write this down. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel is incomplete and the transformation is ineffective. And that idea took me on no small amount of thought this week. Like, I, can you say that? What did he say? What does that mean? And I, but God wouldn't let me take it out. So here we go. So the Greek word used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus in verse two is metamorphau. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, a change in the form or nature of a thing or a person into a completely different one. Change of the form or nature, person or a thing into a completely different one. 
But why does Mark use the word metamorphosis for the transfiguration of Jesus? I mean, it would make sense to say that the appearance of Jesus changed form, but it would literally be an act of heresy to say that Jesus changed his nature from one thing to another. Jesus is not a human who somehow takes on more divine characteristics until, you know, one day after enough prayer and miracles, he's able to sparkle at the top of a mountain. The grave is not some kind of cocoon that Jesus needs to crawl into to make his transformation complete. Jesus is, by his very nature, God made flesh. There is no change that Jesus needs to go through to make the fullness of his divinity a reality. You tracking with me here, church? Say amen. There it is. All right. And yet, and yet, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, not to tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. Okay, so how is one not complete without the other, Jesus? I mean, is it simply because he knew that they wouldn't understand it until later? Well, there's already about three years of stuff that's going on that they don't get, that they won't fully grasp until after they meet the risen Lord. So that's not it. And it surely isn't a warning that no one comes looking for him because Jesus is about to go down off this mountain and walk straight up Calvary's hill directly into the hands of those who are going to put him to death. So that's not it. There's something deeper going on. And I think Jesus takes the disciples on this journey and reveals this moment of transfiguration for the same reason we see him born of a woman when he could have just stayed in the heavens. For the same reason we see him baptized for the forgiveness of sins, even though he would never know sin. For the same reason he went in surrender, even though he had a legion of angels at his disposal. Jesus did it for us. It wasn't about the transformation of his nature. It was about the transformation of ours. There seems to be an increasing number of people today wrestling with the question of how they can change or even if they can change because nothing seems to be working and what might be working doesn't seem to be lasting. There is no process that you can go through to be remade into a better version of who you are. Only Christ can do that. There is no transformation out there that you can undergo that will make you a complete person. Only Christ can do that. And we can't even hide behind church attendance, quoting Bible verses or volunteer hours. Because we can meet Jesus and we can know that his miracles are wonderful and that his teachings are profound and that his presence points us to a glory that is only seen in God the Father. We can have all the right answers. We can have all the dots connected. But if our transformation isn't consumed in the cross, then sin will remain. And if our transformation isn't rooted in the resurrection, then death has already one. It's only by the blood of the lamb that was slain that we are cleansed and made new, that our sins shall no longer be counted against us. Though our sins be red as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. 
It is God who makes his light shine in our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And that's exactly why Paul tells the Colossians to put on, to clothe yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. It is only by the full measure of the gospel where Christ displays the death-defying glory of God that our lives are truly transformed. Where the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. Where you are no longer slaves to that old nature in which you once lived. And we get that. We know that. We still find ourselves constantly asking what that looks like. And so it makes me wonder if there isn't something else driving that question. I wonder if our search for a new way of doing is, is really a desperate longing for a new way of being. There is no new way. There is no new method or better method. There is only Christ. There are not new or better types of Christians. There are only men and women filled with the Holy Spirit of God who have been transformed by the power of Christ. And if I truly am being transformed by Christ, then as that old sin nature with all of its passions and desires of the flesh begins to decrease within me, and as this new nature with all of its passions and desires of God begins to increase within me, then the life I live isn't about a checklist to see whether or not I'm doing what good little boys and girls of Christ are supposed to be doing. Because everything I do flows from Christ who lives in me. This is why Jesus told us to let our light shine before others. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as Christ's servants for Jesus' sake. The deeper, more tangible reality to the transforming power of the gospel is that as we come to see the fullness of God manifest in Jesus Christ, not only are we being remade into the image of the triune God, but we are being transformed in a way that our bodies are becoming temples of the Holy Spirit, dwelling places of God. Because building a dwelling place, a temple, a tabernacle, is the very way God taught us to respond to the manifestation of his presence all those years ago. The only difference is in this version of the story, you and I are the stones. And with Christ as the cornerstone, the whole structure from top to bottom, left to right, from the, the, all the living stones, from the apostles to the prophets, to you and me, are being built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. This reality simply doesn't change the way I think about what I do. It changes the way I think about who I am. It changes what I see when I look in the mirror. Holy temples are distinct. 
when I was living in Cambodia, I didn't need a translator to tell me, you know, which building is the supermarket and which building is the temple. It, it's pretty clear. And you know, how many churches have you driven by? And, hey, what was the name of that church? What, you missed the name on the sign, you weren't, but you knew you just drove by a church just by the way it was designed and shaped and it was beautiful and you want. As temples of the Holy Spirit, clothed in the new self, the mere simplicity of our presence is meant to be a reminder that God still dwells among his people. And our actions, our attitudes are important. Absolutely they are. I don't want to diminish that in any kind of way, right? A temple dedicated to God that is not being used how God has commanded is a bombastic testament to God's glory. But they aren't what give rise to our renewed nature. They are a byproduct. They are a witness to the power of God to transform empty souls into the dwelling place of God Almighty. We are transformed to be temples of the Holy Spirit that by their very nature radiate the light of Christ in the world. And so, yeah, I agree with Peter. That is a terrifying thought, but in the most wonderful way. The transfiguration of Christ is a foretaste of glory divine. And as we walk through this world, are people looking just simply at us and saying, there's where the living God remains and his promises are true. Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Holy God, mighty and immortal, you are beyond our knowing. Yet we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, whose compassion illuminates the world. Transform us into the likeness of Christ. Write your law of love on our hearts and make us reflections of your glory that we may lead others into your presence. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org. 